My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to It's Complicated, the podcast to help you untangle your relationship with your phone. Where we've all been. I'm Tanya Goodin, and each week I'll be talking to my guests about how they manage the relationship with the tiny tyrant in their pocket. We'll be talking about how our phone habits affect our work, our lives and our loves, and about what our relationship with our phone might just tell us about our relationship with ourselves. Where we've all been swept away. If you want help and you want hope, You've come to the right place. This is It's Complicated. Lost everything you tried to say Cause we've all been swept away, This week I'm talking to academic and author Cal Newport. Cal is an Associate Professor of Computer Science at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and the author of six books, including the best-selling Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. Cal coined the term Deep Work, which describes studying for focused chunks of time without distractions, such as email and social media. In 2017, he began advocating digital minimalism, which is also the title of his latest book published in February this year. Cal's ideas and philosophy have been published in all the world's top publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Financial Times and The Guardian. But as a dedicated digital minimalist himself, he has never had a social media account. Cal's based in the US, so we're calling him for this interview today. Cal, hi. I have been talking about you in talks I've been giving for at least the last four or five years. And in every talk I give, whether that's in the corporate uh, workplace or in schools, I quote from Deep Work. 
Um, so I'm really excited about digital minimalism, which is going to be my new go-to book to talk about. Awesome. That's what I'd love to hear. Um, but before we get into the book and the kind of meat of the book, I just wanted to wind back a bit. So this podcast is all about talking to my guests about their relationship with their smartphones and tech. And I think that subject for a podcast kind of even maybe 18 months, two years ago would have would have been met with a bit of surprise. But things have changed. And I was just going to ask you when when you thought the turning point was, when did we all stop kind of laughing and joking about being addicted to our phones? And when did the realisation really sink in that there was a problem about the way we were consuming tech? I noticed the shift starting around two years ago. Uh, For me, it was really in the aftermath of the 2016 U.S. presidential election that something switched in the way that people were conceiving of these technologies. It seemed that they had shifted in their brains from just these gifts being handed down from the nerd gods, as Bill Maher once (laughs) joked, and instead starting to see them as things that could be valuable. And once they had made that shift that, hey, there could be flaws with these technologies, they began to notice more and more. So for me, it's about two years ago is that dividing line where the cultural response really seemed to transform quite a bit. And now it's really kind of filtered into the zeitgeist, isn't it? I mean, everybody's talking about it, um, which is great. Uh, One of the things you've pointed out is that we're dealing with the unintended consequences of the digital world. And I think, you know, one of the things I loved about the book is when you talked about the fact that, you know, Steve Jobs famously only saw the iPhone as a great phone with music. Um, It's the best iPod we've ever made. But you've also talked about the fact that so much of what we're consuming now is engineered to be deliberately addictive. So which is it? Is it, are we finding ourselves in a situation that was unintended or are we finding ourselves in a situation that's been deliberately engineered Well, we're finding ourselves in a situation that changed from what we originally signed up for is probably the best way to think about it. And so we look back to the original consumer-facing smartphones like the iPhone. We look back to early social media like Facebook at 2006 or 2007, and that was a completely different technological experience that we have today. So for people who bought an iPhone early or signed up for the Facebook.com in 2004, when they look up today, the experience is quite different. So there was this point of re-engineering that occurred at some point in the last 10 years in which our relationship with these tools was changed drastically, but without our permission or without us clamoring for it, it was done primarily to boost the revenues of a small number of companies. So it's really when we went mobile, isn't it? I mean, it's when we stopped using, because I, you know, when I think about my own use of Facebook, for example, I can remember signing up for that very early on and using it on my laptop and it not being something that I spent an awful lot of time on. But the minute it became part of the mobile world, that's really when I started to notice some of the issues around that. Well, that timing is exactly right. It was right around the shift, especially of Facebook going to mobile, that we began to develop this sort of compulsive, constant companion style model with our phone. But it wasn't just the movement of the experience from the desktop screen to the mobile screen that created this. There was actually coincident with the move and emphasis on mobile, there was a re-engineering of the whole social media experience. And so this is when companies like Facebook and then others who followed suit began to make the experience much more about social approval indicators. Mm. 
coming towards you through the app. So likes and favorites and photo tags and retweets, things that were not in these original social media platforms. And the reason they began to emphasize these things, it's not because users were clamoring for them, but instead it gave you a reason to keep tapping on the mobile app. Because every time you click on it, there could be a few more likes or a few more tags. And so this is where they began to get serious about exploiting psychological vulnerabilities to get much higher usage numbers. So I know you've written about that, the drive for social approval, and that combined with this intermittent positive reinforcement, that's kind of the dangerous cocktail that we're dealing with. Can you just explain those two um, to listeners of the podcast and tell us which do you think is the most powerful or do they? is it because they're working together that they cause such a problem? Well, they work together. So if you have to, un- to understand the reengineering, we can use the slot machine metaphor. So what's now the reward you get when you pull the slot machine handle, which in this case is tapping on, let's say, the Facebook app? Well, the reward now is comments and likes and tags and things that show uh, approval about yourself. Well, what makes those rewards compelling? It's not money, but what makes it compelling is that it's indications that people are thinking about you. We're really wired to care about that. If I hand you an envelope and say, in this envelope is a rumor I heard someone say about you, you're going to have a really hard time not opening that. We're wired to care (laughs) about what other people think about us. So that's the reward. Now, how do we get us to keep seeking those rewards? Well, Las Vegas casino gambling uh, consultants figured this out years ago, is that you need them to come in an intermittent reward schedule so that sometimes when you pull the handle or tap the app in this case, you get a lot of rewards and sometimes you get none. And so you put those two things together, something that's really appealing, which is social approval, with a really uh, appealing way of delivering it, which is intermittent rewards. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't. What you get is people who are going to pull that handle way, way more than they want to. And that's why I think a lot of people suddenly looked up a couple years ago and said, why am I looking at this screen as much as I do? Maybe I like Facebook because I see my nephew's baby pictures, but why am I looking at this 100 times a day? Why am I picking up my phone 150 times a day? People began to realize, uh uh-oh, there's something more going on here than just, I kind of like these services and it's fun to look at them. Yeah, and I think a lot of it was to do with people actually didn't realize they were looking at it 100 times a day until apps actually came about that that started to help people track that. And I know you you mentioned that in the book as well, that some of the early... You know, before we had screen time with uh, iOS uh, for Apple or digital well-being, there were apps that people were quite shocked when they realized how much they were picking their devices up. Yeah, it's really a surprise. And that's why when you talk to people about why they're uneasy, the argument is rarely usefulness. So they're rarely saying Facebook is useless and and I hate it Mm -hmm. when I'm looking at it, I get no value out of it. The, The problem people are having is autonomy. I'm looking at this way more than I should. I'm looking at this way more than is useful. I'm looking at this to the exclusion of other things that I know are more valuable in my life. And so you feel like your humanity itself is being diminished. That's why people are upset. Now, the social media companies want the argument to be about utility because they can always say, hey, here's a reason why you get value out of Facebook. Here's a reason why you get value out of Instagram. Case closed. But that sort of misdirection is beginning to lose its potency as people say, no, 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 that's not what I'm upset about. I'm upset about why do I need to look at this thing 150 times a day? That does not seem like it's in my best interest. So, I mean, you know, a lot of journalists write about this subject and they just say it's about exercising self-control. You know, it's not that difficult. Just put it away. And I think some of the people I speak to are a bit embarrassed about the amount of times they check their phones and think it is, you know, again, a kind of lack of self-control. So what would you say about that to people who say, look, this is really simple, just stop checking it? 
Well, that's the storyline that's starting to fray in recent years. So people thought before, uh, maybe I'm just looking at this too much because I'm lazy or it's entertaining or I'm bored. And what's changing that perception is as we learn more about the degree to which these things were engineered to actually instigate exactly that use. I mean, if I put slot machines in everyone's office at their desk, probably people would end up pulling those slot machine handles way much more (laughs) than they should. And you want to just say, well, don't be so lazy. Stop pulling the slot machine. You might say, well, why did you put a slot machine on my desk, right? (laughs) Who said that was good for me? And I think we're coming around on that. Uh, The more we find out the degree to which these things were re-engineered, and I say re-engineered because, again, people did not sign up for Facebook in 2006 to look at it 150 times a day. No one did. Mm. That came later. So it was this sort of when you weren't looking, we re-engineered this thing so that instead of it being like a really nice interface for a blog so you can post thing and look at your friend's post, it became this virtual slot machine. It's this re-engineering. People are saying there is some motives behind that, which I don't agree with and I want to change. So unlike me, you never signed up for it at all. I mean, I, you know, I had a Facebook account, I think, in 2007 and then, you know, moved on to Twitter and, uh, you know, all the rest. But you never did. So I'm just wondering, was there something you spotted before the rest of us did? What made you resist? Because obviously it got to a point, didn't it, when everyone was using social media. So you've always been a bit unusual, I assume, in your kind of circle. Was there something that made you reluctant very early on before even the model changed? You know, I've been been trying to rack my memory to figure out exactly what it was that led me not to sign up in the first place. But certainly after I hadn't been on for a couple of years and I saw how pervasive it seemed to be, it was easier to stay off. I think one of the reasons probably why I didn't sign up originally is that uh, I always was a bit of an internet enthusiast and a computer geek. So by the time Facebook had come along, I had been using the internet for years. I had owned multiple domains. I had run multiple blogs and websites. Uh, I'd run an internet business. So to me, uh, it wasn't offering something that I didn't already know how to do. I already had a lot of different means to express myself using the mm-hmm. internet. So that might have blunted its appeal. I also remember that the original Facebook was all about listing things about yourself, like your favorite movies and books. Uh, yes. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I've never like doing that. I have a very hard time trying to answer questions, superlatives about what's your favorite this or that. And so it might have also been then that just sort of quirk of my personality that made it seem a little bit less desirable. But whatever it was, I never signed up. And then I was able to sort of watch this whole thing unfold Mm. with some objective distance, which was an interesting thing to be a part of. Yeah, I bet. So I've been talking to everyone else so far about the problems that we we now find ourselves in and of course you're the man with all the answers with your (laughs) digital minimalism philosophy what I really like about it is that it comes from the perspective of focusing on values our values as individuals and because we're all different our values are different so there's no approach fits all so can you just talk us through what digital minimalism is so it's a philosophy of technology use And essentially what it says is you should start by figuring out what you care about. So what you actually want to spend your time doing outside of work, what's important to you, what makes a good life good. And then working backwards from that, then select 
what digital tools can really help these things I care about and make that essentially define what you do in your online life. So you're cleaning out all of this clutter. So all the apps and services that you've haphazardly downloaded and signed up for over the years, you clean it all out. So you're Marie Kondoing your phone, aren't you? Yes. So, so yes. So I didn't know much about Marie Kondo when I wrote this book, but I'll tell you now, I know a lot about her. (laughs) I hear this a lot, but it is, but, uh, it is a good analogy because Mary Kondo is also a minimalist. She just yeah, focuses yeah. on physical clutter, but her core idea is also my core idea, which is you don't just nibble around the edges. You don't just tweak, you know, for us tweaking our notifications or making our phone grayscale, that'd be like in Mary Kondo's world, buying some nicer closet organizers or occasionally taking something out. And she says, no, you got to clean the whole thing out and then just rebuild it with the things you really care about. Same with your online life. Clear out all this clutter. And then just bring back in the few tools that really give you a big win on the things you really care about and be happy to miss out on everything else. So how does that work? Give me an example, because obviously you're an academic. So, you know, there could be an argument to say that a lot of the things that are real time sucks for everyone else are relatively easy things for you to avoid. But, you know, if we think about our economy with so many people self-employed, hustling for work, say you're a self-employed designer you're trying to raise your profile to get work what would your digital minimalist approach look like so i suggest a a declutter process where what you do is you try to walk away for 30 days from any technology in your personal life that you can do without it causing issues and then where there's overlap so where maybe there's a tech like a certain social media account that overlaps your professional life you put big fences around it this is specifically how I'm going to use it in these 30 days for particular professional purposes and not at all touch it for anything else. And what I recommend is during this 30 days, you get a step away, get back in touch with what matters, have a detox type experience of losing your compulsive itch to keep touching things on your phone. And then when it's over, you can do the rebuilding process. And so, yes, there are overlaps with professional life. But what I suggest is really fencing that off. Don't do it on your phone. Have set times, Mm -hmm. have set schedules. Don't allow it to be the sort of gateway that then justifies, you know, 100, 150 Facebook checks throughout the day. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. 
Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Day. So if we think about social media particularly, um, one of the quotes I really liked from your book, I've underlined it multiple times with a marker pen, is humans have maintained rich and fulfilling social lives for our entire history without needing the ability to send a few bits of information each month to people we knew briefly during high school. I laughed out loud when I read that. But tell us, you know, even though we are all individual and we're consuming digital in a different way, tell us why you think we all need to stop clicking like. Well, we know what gives human beings a sense of connection, a satisfying social life. They have to have uh, be sacrificing time and energy on behalf of strong connections to family, close friends, and community. Right? You have to actually be giving up your time to do something on behalf of people that you care about in your family, your close friends, and your community. And they do it reciprocally. And this builds up a very healthy sense of sociality. We need that, and that's what we need to feel connected. If you are replacing these type of analog high quality connections with the sort of low friction online interactions, clicking like, saying congrats with three exclamation points when a friend has a baby, (laughs) tagging a photo. Sending an emoji. Sending an emoji. Yeah, (laughs) this does not satisfy the same social itch as actually putting in sacrificing time and attention on behalf of people that you care about with real world interactions. And so when I say don't click like, what I'm trying to capture with that suggestion is I want people to think differently about the high quality connections they do in real life versus what they're doing online. And I don't want them to think about what they're doing online as sort of counting in the same category. And so if all you've done this week, let's say, is send text messages and comments and likes on social media, then instead of saying, hey, I've been really social this week, you should think I haven't talked to anyone. So it's not that social media or text messaging should have no role in your social life, but I'm trying to downgrade it towards more of like a logistical role, a way of, for example, organizing higher quality connections, a way to know that a good friend of yours is going to be in town so that you can set up a get together, a way to sort of pass around news that might then lead you to come and visit someone. What we do in the real world is what we crave. What we do online does not satisfy those ifs. You cannot allow the latter to start to displace the former or you'll end up paradoxically lonelier. So I think what's really interesting about what what you've just said there for me is uh, you use the word replacing and displacing. And I think a lot of the social media networks talk about using social media to reinforce and strengthen. Um, but there is evidence, isn't there, that we are kind of retreating behind our screens and and treating social media as though it's enough. You know, we do have research around increasing loneliness anxiety, quite a lot for the younger generation as well. So what evidence have you found around that? Well, psychologists call this phenomenon social snacking, 
where you do the sort of low friction online interaction instead of the high quality in-person interaction. And it does seem to increase loneliness. And for exactly that reason, you uh, get a lot less value out of it. We're also finding that the sort of social comparison that happens online can lead to lower well-being mm. um, or sort of anxiety. We're certainly seeing large rises in anxiety for Generation Z, the first generation to have ubiquitous access to smartphones and social media starting in their early adolescence. And though these studies are mainly correlational, there's a lot of reason to believe that really it is social media and smartphones that's causing this anxiety, in part because the teenagers will tell you that directly. Yeah, they really <laughs> will, won't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of back and forth. You know, the, the whole thing about psychological research is that the, the cool position to be in at any one point is to be contrarian to what other people are saying. So there's this sort of pushback right now on these correlational findings between yeah. uh, anxiety and teenagers. But the crazy thing is... Uh, the teenagers themselves are validating. They're saying, yes, we're feeling that, right? This is exactly, I feel more anxious when, when I use this. And yet we sort of still have people saying, yeah, but who knows, there could be some mystery thing uh, that we're not, we don't know about that's causing the rise in anxiety. But I think uh, that data is starting to get pretty real. And, and more generally, when I hear this storyline that you need social media to sort of reinforce or have strong social connections, I like to remind people that widespread social media use is less than 10 years old. <laughs> and we weren't yeah. exactly hurt. It wasn't like we were all walking around in a lonely haze. We 10 haven't years struggled ago. before, have we? Yeah. No. And now we're happy. You know, now we have these social lives. It's, you know, it's incredibly recent. And so I always get suspicious when, when something comes along that's incredibly recent and then its advocates say, this is, this is center to our life. And if we get rid of it, bad things will happen. I mean, I remember 10 years ago, uh, and I don't remember feeling particularly lonely. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually, because they're kind of moving on from loneliness. I was thinking about our need for solitude, um, which can be seen as the kind of flip side of loneliness. Um, and I, you know, I think this was the bit in your book that I really enjoyed the most and really resonated with me when you talked about how we're just not wired to be constantly wired. And I've been really struck by the fact that the, the mindfulness movement, the modern mindfulness movement has really exploded almost in tandem with our adoption of, of digital mobile technology. There just seems to be an overwhelming need for us to be alone with our thoughts. And yet the digital world is stopping us doing that. So tell me why that's so important and why we should be seeking out solitude a bit more. Right. So it almost seems paradoxical, but it's not. So for the most part, we need to be around people. We, we want strong social connections. We also need, however, occasional times, most days, where we're just alone with our own thoughts. The point was, this was not something we ever had to worry about because it was impossible to go through yeah, a normal day. Yeah. yeah, it just was a part of the, the human experience until about 10 years ago, right? You were just in line, you were walking to your, you know, the drugstore, you were commuting and you didn't like was on the radio. You just always had these brief periods of time we are alone with your own thoughts. It turns out these are really important for a lot of different reasons. And what's interesting about our current moment, however, is that the advent of ubiquitous high-speed wireless internet and smartphones means it's possible for the first time in human history to banish all of those little moments. Mm -hmm. Because now you can always do a quick check of a screen that fits in your pocket to give you a little bit of a, a hit of information, which is input created by another mind, which puts your mind in input processing mode and gets you out of solitude. And so what's unusual is this current state we're in now where we're trying to banish all solitude. And when we do that, it's starting to create problems. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing, I think, is the rising anxiety, isn't it? Particularly amongst teens. Yeah, that if you don't have 
regular time for your brain to be alone with your own thoughts, what happens is your brain gets anxious for, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, we don't yeah. quite have our handle around, but this sort of low grade background hum of anxiety that everyone feels is not necessarily just fundamental for our times, but actually like a, a sickness symptom, our brain saying, wait a second, I need some down cycles where I'm not reading things created by other minds. And I'm just alone with my own thoughts. So what I found really frustrating over the last few years is that the solution that's being proffered to us needing Headspace is an app you know, or a kind of sheaf of apps um, yeah. that, that are going to help us be more mindful. And I've really struggled. You know, I think that's just counterintuitive. You know, we, we need to, to step away and have that blank space in our head. We don't need to be connected yet again to an app that is supposed to help us but I know that's a really unpopular view because it's a very lucrative section in the app store it is but yeah it's like if you were if you were worried about obesity turning to McDonald's for (laughs) your dieting (laughs) advice you say why don't I step out of the world that that is helping to cause the issue and as you're saying there's no the solution couldn't be simpler just do some things every day without a phone that's all you need to get your regular your dose of vitamin solitude yeah yeah. The thing is, that doesn't make anyone any money, though, Cal. That's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe walking shoe companies, because walking around yes. is kind of one of the best <laughs> ways to have solitude. <laughs> um, so we just touched on teens and kind of rising anxiety. And um, of all the pieces that you've done, the press pieces that you've done around the book, the one that I loved was the GQ interview with the headline, Cal Newport, and while we'll all look back on our smartphones like cigarettes. Loved that. But, you know, there was one thing that stood out for me in that piece, which is when you said you were talking about FOMO and you said, I don't fear missing out. I fear not giving enough attention to the things that I already know for sure are important. So I know you're a parent. I know your children, I think you said, are not quite old enough for smartphones. But how do we help our kids give their intention to what we know is important? And, And I think more importantly, how do we stop parents from feeling like they'll be accused of being neo Luddites? if they question what their kids are doing around tech? Because I see that as a big fear. Well, the good news is the culture is shifting on this. But to me, my read of the direction of the research literature is that teenagers shouldn't have smartphones. They yeah. just shouldn't have them. Yeah. And, and, and that's where we need to be. That The GQ, GQ quote was actually giving a smartphone to a 13-year-old. We'll look back at that, like giving cigarettes to a 13-year-old. Their brains aren't ready for it. Their brains can't handle it. And so I, I sort of take the hard stance don't give them smartphones and then say, now, how do I solve all the other problems that creates? You know, yeah. you know, maybe I'll be accused of neo-Luddite. Maybe it'll be hard for the students. Though I have to say, when I'm out there on the road, I'm hearing a backlash from the teenagers themselves. Do you know what? I've had that as well. I've had kids put their hands up and tell me that they have switched from smartphones to dumb phones. Um, yeah. 14 year olds, 13, they're tired 14 year olds. Yeah. They're tired of it. You know, one mom told me she, she read digital minimalism. She was talking to her 14 year old about it. You know, here's what happens when you're on Instagram, how you're monetizing you. And just right there in the car, she's like, okay, great. I'm done. You know, <laughs> like she was that ready not to be using those apps. Yeah. So some people just need, you know, someone to come along and say, you're allowed to stop using this. Yeah. They uh, need permission, don't they? They need yeah. permission. Right. And you know what, if, if one person in the class stops using it, suddenly everyone else has permission. So I, I think we're closer to a cultural shift on that than it can sometimes seem. So you want us to all join the attention resistance you've said in your book, tell us how we can all do that. Well, that's my sort of made-up term for this group that I really enjoy. I love of, it, yeah. Of, of people who, <laughs> who need to, they're digital minimalists who need to use various sort of attention economy 
mega tools like Facebook or Instagram for specific reasons, but are very worried about how these tools are engineered to try to make them into addictive compulsive users. So they deploy their own high-tech tools you know, to make these services much less addictive so they can, they can surgical strike like a commando into them, get the value they need and get out of there without wasting uh, their energy. So they'll use things, for example, like advanced browser plugins so that mm. they can log on to YouTube to get that how-to video, how to change their oil in their car or what have you, in such a way that it, it wipes off the screen automatically the auto-suggestions. Or they'll, they'll use the newsfeed eradicator plugin for Facebook. So they can log in because they need to, let's say, go to a Facebook group to see what some community organization is doing this week, and it, it suppresses the newsfeed. So there's no sort of scroll of articles that's trying to, trying to grab their attention. So they're sort of turning tech back on tech. So they can get the value out of these value out of these services without being transformed into gadgets in their sort of attention extraction machinery. So I turned all the notifications off my iPhone about two years ago now. So that's my own my little bit of attention resistance. And I now, you know, I often stand next to people who have them still all enabled and I cannot believe how they can cope with the amount of notifications they get. I'll tell you the biggest, the simplest but biggest attention-resistant tactic is just take all of those attention economy apps off your phone. And the yeah, social media companies yeah. hate it because their entire business model requires you. They, they don't need to give you a service you like. They need you to look at it 100 times a day. And so if like a lot of attention resistance members, you say, when I need to go on Facebook, I do it at my desktop at home and I don't save the password. I have to type it in. So there's a little bit of friction. So I do it a couple times a week. They're getting the value they need out of the service, but the social media companies hate it because like, no, no, that doesn't help us. We need you looking at it a hundred <laughs> times a day. So you just take it off your phone and yeah. you can hear some sort of muffled screams sort of wafting over from Northern California. <laughs> So, Cal, I'm really conscious that we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, and I, I, you know, I know you're a busy man. I've just got three questions that I've been asking everybody on the podcast that I was wondering if I could just end up with. What is the one message? I know this is really difficult for you to distill down from all your writing. But what's the one thing you'd like to say to people listening to this podcast about their phone habits? Focus on the small number of things that really matter and be happy missing out on the other things, even if those things you're missing out on might have small little bits of value or convenience that they promise. Okay. Um, and have you got a specific tip or hack that you haven't shared already about getting a good balance? Is there kind of, you know, when you, I know when you, um, you had your kind of user group that were experimenting with the digital declutter that the book's based on, was there something that came out of that that you thought that's really useful that someone came up with? Well, it seems, uh, in general, what I learned from that is that it, it rarely works. When you're trying to transform your digital habits, it rarely works just to try to, let's say, take a day or a weekend and do it. You really need to get some space. And so to actually take, let's say, like I recommend, 30 days mm. to just be away from all of that uh, before you start to rebuild your online life, what I found in my experiments is that really matters. It's really hard to short circuit that. It's really hard to shortcut that. At some point, you need to take a sort of non-trivial break from everything before you start rebuilding it in a way that's more intentional. What I find really interesting is how people don't want to go back to the way they were. So I, I do it slightly differently from you. I take people away for groups and get them logging off their tech and then evaluating their, you know, how they use it. And so many people just do not go back to the way they used it before. It's really interesting when they get that space. 
Yeah, just a little bit of space, you realize how non-important some of this is. Yeah. Um, and finally, and this may not be that relevant to you, because I know that you, you don't suffer from some of the same things that uh, people who are listening to this, this podcast might do. But is there anything you've learned about yourself from your phone and kind of tech habits that have surprised you? Well, I mean, I, I've learned even after all these years of not using things like social media or not really web surfing that I'm just as vulnerable to getting sucked into sort of uh, addictive technology use as anyone else. For me, I stumbled into it surrounding, I follow Major League Baseball. And when there's a trade deadline coming up or there's you know breaking news happening every day, I find myself, or I did last summer, falling back into a pattern where I was checking things compulsively. And so even for someone <laughs> like me, who really cares a lot about my attention and is really careful about technology was, uh, you know, immediately trapped in one of these attention traps when I wasn't wasn't paying attention. So what I've learned is that these forces are really strong, yeah. and even the most sort of committed attention specialist can is can succumb to them almost right away. And that's worth remembering. If you really understand the strength of what you're up against, you're much more likely to take the the magnitude of steps that's necessary to keep control of your time and attention. I find that really encouraging that you struggle too. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Great. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it too. So big thanks to Cal for chatting with me today. Of course, at this point, I'd usually be giving out social media handles, but I can't. But I am going to recommend that you all check out Cal's website, calnewport.com, and especially his Study Hacks blog on there, which I'm a huge fan of. And Cal's latest book that we were discussing in the podcast, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World, is available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Well, we've all been pushed around. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's Complicated. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. This is the last episode in Series 1 of It's Complicated. We'd love to get your feedback on what you liked about the first series and what you'd like to hear more of and perhaps less of when we return for Series 2. Do tell us what you think. You can find me, Tanya Goodin, on Twitter and Time to Log Off on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can also email us via the website, itstimetologoff.com. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. But in the meantime, from me and from all my guests in this series, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.